Okay, you can have your seats. <clears throat> A boy went to the store. He intended to buy something with the money that he had. He looked all around the store and found nothing that he could afford with the money that he had. So he left the store sad and dejected and went home to talk to his father and said, Father, I went to the store to buy something and could find nothing that I could buy with the amount of money that I had. Can you help me? And the father said, I can help you. And he grabbed the newspaper and he put it in the boy's hand and said, go get a job. It's pretty good, right? That's a pretty good introduction to a sermon, right? Not too bad. Um, he who has ears, let him hear, right? Um, you probably were not expecting me to begin that sermon in this way with this story. Um, but one thing I know is I think I had your attention, right? I think you were listening. You were, where is this going? What is the point of this? There is really no point to that story. It's not a real story. The boy is not me. The father is not my dad, right? <laughs> Nonetheless, it was a very sort of different way to start a sermon, was it not? It was interesting, in chap Matthew chapter 13, just before the passage that was read for us, Jesus is going to begin a series of teaching in a similar way. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, you see that it says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, and he begins, A sower went out to sow. That's how he begins. Not quite a boy went to the store, probably better than mine, right? Um, and notice it says, he told them many things in parables. And then he goes into this story. And what we see in this teaching and the remainder of the teaching that we are going to see in Matthew chapter 13 is Jesus is going to teach in parables. Parables. Now, parables is just really a specific type of storytelling. And it really is fascinating how stories are such an effective way to communicate things. Stories, such an effective way to communicate ideas, emotions, concepts, beliefs. Storytelling has this way of really striking a chord with humanity. And you see that with the way storytelling has been used throughout the millennia. I mean, you can go way, way back in, in, into this storytelling tradition. You can go back and you can see stories being told in art through painting and sculpture. You see stories being told through, uh, through literature, 
coming into the modern age, you see stories being told via visual um, motion media like television and in movies. And you can see, I'm sure you have seen the profound cultural impact that storytelling can have. And maybe for a moment we might stop and think, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that stories have this way of, of moving our hearts, of challenging our minds? Well, why don't we go even further back than that and, and think about how God chose to communicate to us? God speaks through, uh, to us through his scripture. And what do we see in the scriptures? That large, large portions of the scripture are what? Narrative. It's storytelling. It's the stories of people. And through these stories, we see how God communicates to those same people in the stories. But then we also see how this narrative and the stories here are the basis, the foundation, the underpinning of a larger redemptive story that we come to know as we come to Scripture. And then God reveals Him to us, reveals His Son, reveals His plan of redemption, and it's happening through this narrative form. Isn't that fascinating to think about? And then, so then it kind of makes sense that how storytelling has this sort of impact on us and on the culture. And now it's so fascinating. We come to Matthew chapter 13, and we think about Jesus, and he comes to teach here in Matthew chapter 13, and he's going to teach in what? Parables, which again is a form of story. So I think it might be important for us to step back and see how we've got to Matthew chapter 13. If you had to go back in, in the narrative as we've been going through and think about the last time that Jesus paused to give some lengthy teaching, where would we go, where would your mind go back to? My man goes back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, and you look at the beginning, it says that Jesus, he sees the crowds, and what does he do? He went up into the mountain, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, and he sits, because that is the, of the time, the, the posture that the rabbis of the time would use to teach. They would teach from the seated position. It says when he sat down and his disciples came to him and then he begins the Sermon on the Mount and we spent a lot of time there going through that. And Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and primarily is explaining what? What his kingdom is about. What was the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing and that the nature of the kingdom that he is the king of? And what was the character of that kingdom? And in that 
in that teaching, in that preaching, there's a lot of ethical teaching. We talked about, you know, understanding anger and lust and divorce and retaliation and loving your enemies and giving and praying and fasting and being anxious and judging. It was really fascinating, and it was in the form of a sermon, right? It took sort of a sermonic form. And when you come out of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7, when you come out of that into Matthew chapter 8, we see that Jesus now starts moving. And we said, well, we go from the Sermon on the Mount to the Sermon on the Move. Jesus takes those principles from the Sermon on the Mount and takes them on the road, right? They sort of step into action as he is ministering and he's on the way. And if you look at the language in Matthew, Matthew chapters 8 to 12, which you could consider this Sermon on the Move section, you, might, you would notice that there is a particular emphasis on language on Jesus moving, on the movement of Jesus. If you look right in the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, right when Jesus finishes the sermon, it says he, what, comes down off the mountain and the crowds followed him. He's on the move. Later in chapter 8, you see he enters into Capernaum. Later on, you see he's taking trips on a boat. So he's getting some, some sea miles in. Later it says as he's passing from one place to another, that's when he calls the disciple Matthew, the author of this gospel. But he does that while he is on the move. We see later on in that section that uh, Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter of a ruler in the synagogue. And while he is on the way, what happens? A woman with an issue of blood comes and touches the hem of his garment and is healed. All happening while Jesus is moving. Then Jesus sends his disciples out on the move. In Matthew chapter 10, he brings his disciples in to send them out on mission and gives them some guidance on what that's going to look like, what it looks like to be on mission for God, and then he's going to send the disciples out. Now, the disciples are moving. Multiple times in, Ma if you t in Matthew chapters 8 through 12, you see it talking about Jesus going into various towns and various cities, preaching, teaching, healing. In chapter 12, just before, you see that he's walking through the grain fields, Jesus moving. He's entering the synagogue, all this language. And it's so interesting. We come to chapter 13. And then after all this activity and all this moving, um, the beginning of chapter 13 starts very serenely. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. When was the last time he sat? It talked about him sitting very clearly when he sat on the side of the mountain to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's on the move, and now Matthew chapter 13, here he is again, and he's sitting, but now he's sitting beside the sea. I, I'm not sure why he went out there. You know, maybe he just wanted to get some fresh air, you know, take a break. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to 
spend some time on a, like a shoreline, like alone. Maybe you have, maybe you, maybe you haven't, or maybe just at a, at the beach, and there just wasn't a lot of people there. It was just maybe just you, or just maybe just a handful of people, right? I'm not talking about going to the beach or going down the shore July Fourth when it's like you're all packed in there like sardines, and everyone's got the not that, right? On the shore, and it's just right. That can be a very sort of um, be a very sort of serene moment. I want to imagine. I want you to imagine that you went out there, and you're just on the shore, and you're there by yourself, and you're sitting, and you're looking out, and you're taking everything in. It's very serene. And then, before you know it, you are surrounded by hundreds of people. Imagine. Now, what might you think? I'm getting up to throw hands, right? I think it's, it's going down, right? Um, there's, that's the only reason that's happening. I think I'm about to die and I'm gonna fight. But this is precisely what happens to Jesus. It's fascinating. He says he goes out and he sits by the sea. And in verse two of chapter 13, it says, and, a, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And now I think I know why he's sitting, right? But twice it's emphasized that he went and he's sitting. Why? Because he's assuming this position of teaching as a rabbi, and they've come to what? To hear from him. They're expecting to hear something from him. They've heard his preaching. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They've heard him preach and teach like no one else has ever preached or taught. I don't know exactly what all those people were expecting him to say in that moment. How did he open the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there it is, right? He uses what, what language? The kingdom of heaven. Right from the beginning, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's using those words. He's teaching and he's pre preaching, and he's using that explicit language, be, and that's important because that's what he's talk, come to talk about, right? That's his primary message. It's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about himself as a king and that kingdom. So now they come, they're all standing there. He's sitting on a boat. They're all standing on the shore. And he's about to open his mouth again. And in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, he begins what? A sower went out to sow. What does he begin with? He begins with a story. Essentially, Jesus begins with once upon a time. <laughs> and what he's going to do in the rest of chapter 13, he's gonna, there, there are many other parables that he is going to use. And we're going to spend the next few weeks digging into these parables, trying to understand what Jesus is trying to say about his kingdom because we know it's going to be about his kingdom what he's trying to tell us through these parables. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to begin with this idea or starting with the idea of thinking about what is a parable. 
Why is Jesus using them? And how might, how might we attempt to understand what he's trying to tell us through them? So that's where we're going to begin today, thinking about what a parable is and sort of setting ourselves up to be able to dig into the Jesus parables as teaching over the next few weeks. So there's three main questions that I, I want to ask here that I want us to consider as we prepare ourselves for this descent into the parables. The first is just very basic. Right? What is a parable? What is a parable? So a parable is, it's a practical story often framed as a simile. Now that word simile you probably haven't heard since probably maybe third grade language arts, right? Okay. A simile is just a comparison using what? Like or as. That's a simile. So a parable is a practical story often framed as a simile that illustrates spiritual truth. There are all kinds of parables in the Gospels. There are many. Some of them are pretty famous, right? As soon as I said parables, there are probably a couple parables that pop right into your mind. Um, the biggies, if you will, right? The parable of the prodigal son. Probably familiar, right? The parable uh, of the good Samaritan. That's another one. Um, the parable of the lost sheep, right? These are ones that are probably at the forefront of your mind. So that's what a parable is, right? These stories, what do they do? They draw a comparison in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. So that's question number one. What is a parable? Question number two, how do we understand parables? How do we understand them? This question is really important because different parables have been interpreted and misinterpreted in different ways throughout the history of the church. Some people have tried to figure out the meaning of, parable, uh, of parables by finding parallels for every detail in the parable. For example, right, you might go into the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and make the following connections, right? The man who is beaten up is a sinner. The priest who comes along the way and does nothing stands for the law. The Levite who comes along and does nothing stands for the, the sacrificial system. Jesus is a Samaritan who pays the bill. The inn where the person stays is the church. The two silver coins are, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's certainly a creative interpretation. But what problems might there be with that sort of approach? Well, one problem is Neither Jesus or the Bible ever tells us that that is exactly what that parable means. So how do we understand parables so we're not abusing them or misunderstanding them? 
So here are three principles that I want all of us to keep in mind as we go throughout Matthew chapter 13 and, and any other time we come to engage a parable of our Lord Jesus. There are three main principles that I think are beneficial to help us in our understanding of these. So here they are. Number one, listen from the original hearer's perspective. Number two, look for the main point. And number three, let the truth let the truth change your perception. So if we apply these three principles, we'll be in good shape as we go and we engage these parables over the next few weeks. And anytime you come across a parable of the Lord, listen from the original hearer's perspective, look for the main point, and then let the truth change your perception. So let's talk about these principles quickly. So first, in terms of listening from the hearer's perspective, right, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who first heard the parables in order to understand what they were hearing. Jesus is going to use pictures and stories that are far more familiar to first century Jews than they are to 21st century modern people. So we need to ask some questions as we engage a parable, like, what would they hear? What would stick out to them? What would stand out to them? How would they respond at different points of the story? What kind of emotions would rise up when they heard certain things? Like, for example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what kind of emotion would rise up when they heard the word Samaritan? So this is really important to think in the perspective of the original hearers. That's one. Secondly, um, we need to look for the main point. Far more often than not, there is usually one main point in any parable, at most two or three, depending on the more complicated and various elements of some. But as we're reading it, we should try to identify the primary truth that is being communicated. And lastly, once we're able to discern this main point, we need to let the truth change our perception. Why? Well, that's the whole point of parables. It's not just that Jesus said, hey, you know what? I'm going to mix it up like a preacher saying, hey, you know, we're going to switch from expository preaching to thematic preaching. Let me, let me change it up. Jesus isn't just changing it up. The whole point of parables is to challenge the way people think about something by using this unconventional route, this unconventional angle through story. And this is what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 13. 
So the first question, what, what is a parable, right? We address that. Um, how do we understand parables? The last question we want to consider today, why do we have parables? In other words, why not just state the main point instead of telling a story? That's a good question. And this is exactly the question that the disciples asked Jesus in verse 10 that Lucas was so kind to read for us. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, the disciples say, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? What is Jesus' answer in verse 11? Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. It's a very interesting answer. Jesus points to two purposes for parables, and these purposes are different based on two different kinds of audiences. This purpose is really clear even in the way this chapter is structured. The first four parables in this chapter are told to the crowds, while the last four parables and their explanations are told to only the disciples. So what were these two purposes? Here's the first one. Jesus was revealing truth to those who were believing the mysterious. For the disciples, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven had been given for them to know by God. Okay, what are these secrets? Other translations, instead of calling them secrets, we'll call them mysteries. Mysteries. The word mystery or secret that's translated here is really referring to something that was hidden in the Old Testament and is now made known in the New Testament. So it was no secret that God was going to send a Messiah to usher in a new kingdom. But what was the secret? What kind of Messiah would God send? And how that Messiah would conquer? Not through political struggle or physical force, but how? Through selfless love, sacrificial death on a cross. So, hear me this morning. For those who were trusting that Jesus was indeed this promised king, for those the parables were helping them understand what kind of king he was and what kind of kingdom he was ushering in. That The disciples, they were really privileged to hear and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven because this was evidence of God's mercy towards them. What does Jesus say? But your eyes are blessed 
This is in verses 16 and 17. But your eyes are blessed because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For I assure you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, yet didn't hear them. Now, I don't know if there's a word that pops up in your mind as you you hear that. To me, the word that pops up and is really all over that passage is grace. To the disciples, it had been given to know these things. Given by whom? By God. And more would be given by God. So if we ask why the disciples understood and believed while so many others didn't, the answer is that it was the grace of God, the mercy of God. Have you ever thought why you, as a follower of Christ, see forgiveness in the cross when so many others see foolishness? Is, is it because you're, you're better? Because you're smarter? Because you're more humble? Because you're more religious? Why? No. It's only because God is merciful. It is only because God is merciful. He's opened your eyes to see and he's opened your ears to hear. You are also blessed to live in a time when we have the full revelation of God's word as it points to Jesus Christ. We talk about seeing Christ in the word. What a privilege. That's something that the Old Testament saints, they could have only longed for. But believers now possess that. Now, but what about those who who were rejecting Christ? Because if you look into the narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that there are those who are rejecting Christ, those who are refusing to see him as the Messiah. See, the parables have a different purpose for them. Matthew gives us here the second purpose of the parables, which is Jesus was concealing truth from those who were denying the obvious. How many miracles have we gone through in the Gospel of Matthew? In spite of miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, Much of the crowds and the religious leaders refused to believe in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus said that it has not been given to them to understand these stories and that even the understanding that they had would be taken away. And in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he is doing it this way. These are Jesus' words. For this reason... 
I speak to them in parables because looking they do not see and hearing they do not listen or understand. And Jesus follows that up with a statement from quoting Isaiah chapter 6. So he's quoting from a part in Isaiah right after the prophet is commissioned. So God has commissioned Isaiah as his prophet. And right after he commissions Isaiah as his prophet, God tells Isaiah that he would preach, but what? People aren't going to listen. Because their hearts were dull. Their eyes were shut. Their eyes were closed. See, many people saw Jesus' miracles in that day outwardly. But they refused to see what those miracles said about him. They heard all of what he's had to say about, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But they didn't understand the ramifications of what that meant. See, Jesus knew that these parables would not be rightly understood by those. And if you look into Isaiah, this is really evidence of God's judgment. See, even though many had the person of Christ and the words of Christ right in front of them, they were rebelling against him. So parables have this duality about them. They conceal and they reveal. Parables conceal and they reveal. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, if you are not seeing or hearing correctly as you hear these parables explained in the following chapters as we're going to go through, I'd say don't, don't let that be a means of God's punishment, but rather a way in which he penetrates through your heart. Many of the parables that are coming, the endings of them have very stark warnings. So I'd invite you to take those warnings not as a conclusion. But take those warnings as an invitation to choosing life over death. That should be the takeaway. Like, let these parables be sort of the alarm bells that go off, like wake you up from whatever kind of spiritual slumber you might be, right? Push you out of the comfort that you might be in and say, hey, time to wake up. See the kingdom. It's at hand. So that's the application to those who maybe are not trusting in Jesus. But for those of us who do believe, what's our application for these? And we already talked about it, but it is gratitude for the grace of God.
Because remember, it says it has been given. That's a gift. We should be grateful for the gift that we can see, that we can hear. We should be grateful that though we were once deaf to the gospel, that now we hear. That though we were once blind to the kingdom, that now we see. Gratitude for grace. Which one of us here deserves to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Which one of us here deserves it? Which one of us here deserves the gift of the gospel of grace? Who deserves it? Yet what does Paul say in Romans chapter 5 verse 8? That the gift has been given while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The depths of grace as you hear those words are unfathomable. So for this reason, the fact that we can hear parables and understand them should lead us to praise God. The parables should lead to praise. Uh, think about the disciple Thomas as he saw Christ's wounds and heard his voice, Jesus says to him, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who is that? Right, that is you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have be believed. So do you feel blessed today because we have been given much we have been given the gospel so if you have been given much if you have been given much what is then required of you if you have been given much what is required that you must freely give you must freely give this good news to others our sins are forgiven through faith in him so, just like the 12 disciples, and like all who call him themselves disciples of Jesus, we've been given this gift so that we can also give. So, what I want to say this morning to you is don't grow weary in doing that. It can be tempting to grow weary, right, in, in lots of things. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in your gratitude for that gift. Don't grow weary. Don't grow, grow weary in giving that gift, in sharing the treasure of Jesus, because that is really part of the purpose of parables. Amen. So we'll come now to the Lord's table this morning that's prepared before us. Um, I want to, just for a moment, as we talked about parables and we talked about the, the purpose and why it's important to understand the purpose, uh, I want to take a moment for us to consider um, why we do this. 
Why, why is it that we do it? So one thing I think it's important for us to understand is this is not just ritual. It's not just something we do for the sake of doing it. It's not something that we do because, well, we've always done it, right? That's not what this is. As we have the Lord's table prepared before us, it's important to understand it's not ritual that we are practicing obedience, that Christ himself has called on us to do this, to remember him in this way. So this is not ritual, it's obedience. The next question is, well, what is this? What's actually happening here? What, what are we doing? Well, we are remembering. We are remembering. We remember the body broken, the bloodshed of our Lord Jesus. Why are, why are we called to remember? Well, we're prone to forget. So what are we doing? We're remembering. But this is not just remembering. That's something important I want you to know. Because we are remembering, but God is also working through this. See, we remember, we are remembering, and God is working. God is ministering His grace to us through this. So never view this as just merely a remembrance of something, an event in history that happened at one time. We remember because we are prone to forget, and God's presence is here with us to work in us. So we remember, and God works. And then the next question is, well, it's, the table is prepared. Who, who should come and participate, right? So this is also a good question for us to consider. And it's important for us to consider because the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the Lord's table, says that let, let a person examine himself. So it's important that we come before the table not thoughtlessly, right? Not carelessly, not cavalierly or nonchalantly, that we come engaging our mind and examining ourselves. Well, what should we then examine, right? What do we examine? So here's something I want to provide for you as a, something you can think about as you think about how you should examine yourself as you come before the Lord's table. So we should be examining our faith. And you can think about your faith along two sort of axes, if you will, right? There is the profession of our faith and the practice of our faith. And then there's the private expression of our faith and the public expression of our faith. Okay? So the profession of our faith and the practice of our faith and then the public, the private and public expression of our faith. So first, our profession. Have we made a profession to God about our faith and trust in Him? That we know who He is? That we know who His Son is? We confess Him as the Son of God, God Himself that we're putting our trust in his life, death, and resurrection for us on our behalf, 
that we have confessed ourselves as sinners who need the grace of God desperately and are putting our trust in Christ for that forgiveness and his faithfulness to transform us. So that profession of faith is something that we should examine our hearts about. Have we done that privately? Have we done that to God? A private profession. Now, as you seek to examine yourself, if you go, you know what, I don't know that I've done that. The response at the table should not be to throw up your hands and go, well, the table's not for me, and then walk away. No. You are called to what? Make that profession. Make that private profession to God. But the context of the Lord's table is communal. We are coming together as the body of Christ. So it's not just about a private profession that we must also have made a, a public profession. Have we taken that profession in the context of the community of faith and said, this is what I believe. I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as my Lord and Savior, as the one who died in my place on my behalf to, to pay the penalty for my sins. So there is the private expression of our profession, but also the public. So that's something we can examine ourselves about. Have we done that? Now, again, if we examine ourselves and, we, and you say, you know, I don't know that I've ever done that in any sort of tangible way, well, the question then, that we should not come before the table and go, oh, well, you know, the table's not for me. We should go, how do I do that? The church is here to help with that. Right? The church is here to help the guide, shepherd, counsel, in whatever form and fashion, right? So you've got profession in, in private and in public, but you have profession of our faith, but also what the practice of our faith our faith should come alive in practice. Our faith should come alive in expression, in our practice. So that's something else you can examine. Are you practicing your faith, and again, in private, are you practicing your faith? Are you practicing confession and repentance daily? Are you practicing those disciplines that God has called us to in, in, in reading his word and, and in prayer, right? Are you, are you practicing your faith? Something for us to examine. Now, again, as you examine, right, um, if you say, you know, I'm struggling with that or I don't, I don't do that, it's not that we're not just to go, okay, well, the table's not for me. No, we're called to action again. The church is here to help in whatever way. We should have a longing and a desire to take our profession of faith and bring it into practice. And the church is here to help. Now, you might be practicing your faith privately, but go, oh, well, you know, it's a me and God thing. We got it sorted out. <laughs> God has called us to practice our faith not only privately, but publicly in the context of community. God's called us to do that. That's why we partake of this meal together. It's to be expressive of the body of Christ that is together with us. Now, again, if you examine and you go, 
uh, you know what? I'm not really taking advantage of the fellowship. I'm not seeking out like-minded believers. I'm not doing that. We should not be going, oh, the table's not for me. What should we do? We should go, and you should know the church is here to help that. All kinds of ways to connect with like-minded believers. All kinds of way to, ways to think about our faith in community with others. There's opportunities for that. So I'd encourage you, I'd encourage you, as you examine yourself, to think upon these things, your profession of faith and your practice of faith in private and in public. So would you allow me now to lead us in a time of confession as we come before the Lord's table? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? <clears throat> Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word that um, was brought to us. Uh, we thank you for eyes that can see and ears that can hear, Lord. So even now, as we come uh, before your table, help us to hear and to see. Help us in our examination of our own hearts, Lord. Lord, we confess our sin before you. We confess our, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our selfishness, our wickedness before you. We confess our lack of action in, in word and thought and deed Lord, we seek your mercy and grace and forgiveness, God. Lord, I pray that as we examine our hearts, if there's anyone that struggles with the either the private or public, Lord, expression of their faith in, in profession or practice, Lord, pray that you would birth an urgency in those um, and that they would with hunger and thirst, Lord, reach out um, into the faith that you have called them to, Lord. So help us as we seek to remember. We confess that we forget. Help us as we seek to remember the great sacrifice of your son. It's not a small thing. It is actually everything. Um, I mean, we thank you that as we remember that you are faithful to work in our hearts, and in our minds. We thank you, great and merciful shepherd. You are the only one that we can trust. Help us to further our trust in you. We give you the praise and the honor, Lord. Now would you take a moment in the silence to examine yourself Confess your sin and meditate upon the cross of Jesus Christ. 